This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Hindrances are not something that we can just wish away. We have to see them clearly. We have to understand them. And through that, see, that clear seeing and understanding, we'll be able to stay steady, be mindful, and be unswayed by their forces. They won't be able to obsess our minds. They might arise, but they won't be able to remain. The hindrances will lose their power when we become mindful of them. But I wanted to focus primarily on the hindrances of sloth and torpor and restlessness, which are the extremes of energetic imbalance. Sometimes we experience a certain degree of of sleepiness, maybe a sluggishness of mind, maybe some dullness. And sometimes we're just fatigued physically. Maybe we've been very busy. Maybe there's been a lot going on in our lives. Maybe we're juggling a lot of, of, of things that, um, that require our attention at home. So it may be activity. It may be emotional changes. And it may just be accommodating the various changes in the world. And that can affect our energy. It can affect our sleep patterns. Even just traveling and coming to a new place and sleeping on a new bed sometimes disturbs the sleep patterns. So it might sometimes be that we just need to rest a little bit in the first day or two of a retreat. Sloth and torpor as a hindrance is not really pointing to this physical need for rest and sleep sometimes. That sometimes gets out of whack when we travel or just when we are dealing with the issues of life. Sloth and torpor refers to a movement of mind that withdraws from experience, that contracts away from what's difficult, that doesn't want to meet the experience that we're having now. Therefore, it's a hindrance to mindfulness. Therefore, it prevents the deepening of concentration because we are, in a way, pulling back our energy. We're not meeting the present moment as it is fully. I want to mention four general causes of dullness, of sleepiness, of sluggishness, of sloth and torpor. The first is that experience of just being physically tired, or emotionally tired, or mentally tired. And this can easily happen as we juggle the responsibilities of caretaking at home, of travel, of dealing with pain or illness, of intensive emotional upheavals, or intensive deep therapeutic work, or just jet lag, or dealing with chronic illnesses. So we have to check in with compassion and care to see, are are we tired? Are we fatigued? Do we need to really give ourselves a break, take an extra nap, take care of ourselves. Being tired itself is really not a big hindrance because if we're just physically fatigued or emotionally tired, we get a good rest, we take a nice walk in nature, and we can restore our energy and come into the present moment. So I don't really count this much as, a, as the sloth and torpor hindrance. Same with feeling a little sluggish if you ate a, little, a big meal or, or, or something like that. It, it's really, there's such clear physical causes that it's not something to be concerned about. 
but we should also look at biochemical imbalances that, that often affect the clarity of our minds. And over time, most of us are old enough to have figured out certain things that we can tolerate and can't tolerate in our food. You've probably gotten a sense of how you respond to caffeine or sugar or carbohydrates or proteins. If there's a protein deficiency, if there's a, a vitamin deficiency, if there's a food intolerance, if you're very sensitive to the dramatic highs and lows that come with caffeine or sugar, you'll be experiencing those, those energetic rise ups and the crash down later. And it probably won't surprise you very much that, oh, there are consequences for whatever that is that you, you take in. Dehydration can cause sluggishness and dullness of mind. Addictions and psychiatric conditions. There can be a whole host of mental, emotional, as well as physical and food causes. So we have to bring some sensitivity to the nutrition, to the way we care for the body, to the degree of that exer- what, how exercise affects our body how it affects our mind, how different environments affect our bodies and minds so that we can support our growth in whatever way that we can. The third cause I want to mention is an imbalance between the concentration and stabilizing factors of mind and the energizing, arousing factors of mind. It's often this um, balance that we need to observe as our practice deepens. You know, when we come into the retreat, we might be tired because of our daily lives and the changes. We don't have total control over what we eat, over the temperature, over the schedule, over when we sleep, over all the various conditions. And so there's a lot of adjustments. And, you know, there's not so much control over that. But as our concentration deepens, as our mindfulness builds, the momentum of our mindfulness builds, we will be finding that we are developing very beautiful, wholesome factors of mind. But the question is, are they developing in balance? The seven factors of enlightenment include mindfulness, which is an inherently balanced factor, and then three arousing, energizing factors and three tranquilizing, calming factors. Those energizing factors and those calming factors have to be developed in balance. If we're focusing on just a calming factor, we might make that factor really, really, really strong, but then completely dull out because it's not being supported by the energizing factors. And if we're developing those energizing factors too much and we're not getting the composure and the concentration and the settledness of the calming factors, then we're going to get restless and agitated. So the seven factors of awakening have to be developed, but developed in balance. Those energizing factors are interest, investigation, energy, and joy. And the calming factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. If, if it's out of balance, like if you're focusing really, really hard to concentrate, you might find yourself falling asleep even though you were succeeding in getting concentrated. But if you focus the attention in a way that brings forth energy and channels the energy into our concentration and then allows there to be some joy in being present, some interest in the development of mind or the meditation subject, then those arousing factors will support the deepening of the concentration and the whole set, all the factors will strengthen and deepen. In a way, we could see meditation as an ongoing balancing act that requires a lot of subtle adjustments. It's not just one mode. I'm going to sit down and force the mind to be steady, to be loving, to be filled with goodwill. 
We have to keep adjusting our energies and adjusting our calmness and getting a sense of composure in the present moment with our meditation subject. If we're developing metta, then we will be developing the awakening factors in conjunction with metta, through the development of metta. If we're working with mindfulness of breathing, then those, those awakening factors will develop. Sometimes sloth and torpor arises as a reaction to um, an unpleasant experience. You know, maybe something's happening and, and you don't really like it. Maybe, um, I don't know, maybe there's a sensation, like, like maybe you're very close to the air conditioner and it's kind of unpleasantly cool. And if you don't want to be mindful of the unpleasant thing, sometimes what the mind does is withdraw from it. And withdrawing from experience, it's like it opens up a gap in which dullness can fill that gap. Sometimes we just space out, we dull out. We let the mind wander off into fantasies as a way of pushing away a subtle, unpleasant experience. So we can look to see if there's a lot of dullness, sloth and torpor, and it feels like the mind just doesn't want to connect with the experience of the present moment or with your meditation subject, if it kind of doesn't want to do this thing that you came here to do, to cultivate the qualities you came here to cultivate, and you feel that resistance, look to see if there's aversion in the experience. Recognize the resistance as a form of aversion. Recognize the interaction of these different hindrances, aversion and sloth and torpor in this case. So certainly we need to take care of ourselves, get sufficient rest. But we shouldn't let, we shouldn't use, uh, like interpret all the conditions of dullness as just being oh, I need to take care of myself. I need to go take my fifth nap for the day. I need to just relax. I've been working so hard in my life. I just need to kind of kick back and do my own thing for the whole retreat. Yes, we do need to take care of ourselves, and it's good to take care of ourselves. But we have to be careful that we're not, that we're not letting that become an excuse to be lazy. That would fuel sloth and torpor. If sloth and torpor overtakes the mind, we won't have the strength to face the difficulties and the other hindrances will find their way into and we'll, we might experience what we call a multiple hindrance attack where we've opened the doorway by giving into one hindrance. We've opened the floodgates <laughs> and other hindrances come in. The sloth and torpor is it's not a hindrance that I worry about very much when it just comes now and then. But it can be a big problem if it becomes the habit, if it becomes the way we engage with anything that is difficult. Because it then withdraw, it's a movement of withdrawing from the difficult, which is the opposite of what we need to be mindful of what's happening, to meet the experience. Um, the jhana factor that is the antidote to sloth and torpor is the directing of attention, the connecting of the attention with what is the object that's being perceived. There's an active, directed moment of connection. Sloth and torpor is the opposite. Sloth and torpor withdraws, pulls away, doesn't care. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend whose um, son was incarcerated for a couple of years. And in prison there, of course, is not very much to do, so the, the inmates slept a lot, just a lot. And when he was released um, and stayed again with his mother, it was very hard for him to even 
deal with a day. The, the, he had already trained his mind to just go to sleep. Anything that was disturbing, that was agitating, just go to sleep, just go to sleep, just go to sleep, just go to sleep. And it was very difficult to sustain the energy of a, for a day to, make, to, to go out, find work, to do the things that we have to do to meet life fully. We may not have that kind of an experience. You actually all got yourself to the retreat. But notice if there is some aspect that just wants to pull away and dull out and not deal with the truth of the situation. Because if that became the habit, if that movement obsessed your mind, it would be very disempowering, to say the least. This aspect of sloth and torpor, which is kind of like an unproductive habit that shrinks away from difficult experiences, that doesn't believe we can deal with the normal dukkha of life, can corrupt our, our, our capacity to develop meditation. Hence, it's called a hindrance. Usually, though, our lives are not extremely difficult. We have our moments, each one of us, no doubt, (laughs) will be facing difficult experiences in our lives at one point or another. But across the whole of uh, the days, probably there's more neutral experiences than ecstatically blissful ones or devastatingly painful ones. So one way of working with sloth and torpor is to challenge yourself to be interested in the neutral experiences, in the subtle experiences, so that those subtle experiences aren't just brushed aside as being boring. In meditation, we use fairly neutral objects. We might use the breath, which is not extremely exciting most of the time. It's not tremendously stimulating. So we have to actually activate our um, capacity to direct attention, vitaka, in order to find and meet and know breath. When the experience is just not stimulating very much within itself, we have to look at the quality of our attention. And that's what we're cultivating. We're cultivating attentional skills through meditation. How does your attention meet a neutral experience? Can it stay steady? Can it meet it for a consistent period of time or for a continuous period of time over across moments, many moments, and remain tranquil and have vivid mindfulness? Or do we just get bored, dull off, snooze through the quiet moments, hoping that at some point something more interesting will capture our attention? And usually it's a fantasy. You know, every once in a while, it'll be some, some environmental experience like thunder. Maybe it'll be a sensation. But mostly, the mind just wanders off into the thought. One of the interesting things in the metta practice is to work with the neutral category and to see if your mind can stay steady or does it also wander off. Some people find that it's very easy to develop loving kindness for the people that they adore and the people that they hate. But the mind dulls out and forgets what it's doing when there's neutral people. So see what happens in your own mind with that neutral category and see if you can let that be vivid. Something becomes vivid because of the quality of the attention, not necessarily the nature of the object. The vividness is in the attending. It's in the quality of the awareness and the mindfulness. 
for example, no doubt you've all sliced open an apple at some time or other in your life. If not, try it tomorrow morning for breakfast. There's a bowl of apples out. If you're not paying attention, you might slice into the apple, cut off a piece and bite it and crunch it and hardly even notice it and think, ah, it's just an apple, it's not very exciting, and hope that they have pineapple for breakfast or that they serve mango or something more exciting. But the problem is not with the apple. The apple is fully being an apple. The problem is, is that it's a fairly common fruit around here. And sometimes when things are familiar, we just don't pay attention. But if we slice into that apple and we're mindful of the texture, we hear the sound of the slicing. We feel the moisture on our fingers. We bring the slice to our mouth and we smell that fresh sliced apple smell. And we put it in our mouth and we crunch down, mindful of the full experience of the flavor, of the texture, of the moisture, of the aroma. And we notice the effect that it has that it quenches our thirst, that it satisfies our hunger, that it produces energy in the body. It's not a boring apple when we're mindful of it. So we don't need to look for something that we believe will be more satisfying than what is present. Instead, we cultivate the capacity to be mindful, steady, and clear with what is present. Because if we're, not pre- pre- if we're not mindful of what is present now, if we're not satisfied with what is here, there's no way we're going to be satisfied and present for what is to come. Because we can't practice mindfulness in the future. We can only ever practice it in the here and now. In mindfulness practice, in metta practice, in the development of concentration and jhana practices, we learn how to stay steady, how to stabilize the mind, how to be aware of subtle experiences, the calm states, the tranquil states, how to compose ourselves in the midst of experience. Even if a lot seems to be happening in the environment, We compose ourselves in a steady, clear way. When our concentration is strong, the coarse sensory pleasures won't even interest the mind. The mind will actually prefer peace. It will prefer what is refined and what is subtle. There are a number of ways that we work with sloth and torpor, dullness and boredom when they arise. And yes, as I said before, sometimes if we're tired and fatigued, we do need to rest. But we shouldn't let sloth and torpor send us to bed. When we know this is a hindrance, we deal with it as a hindrance. We don't indulge it. If you indulge hindrances, they will, take, they will take over more space in our minds and become a habit. So the first challenge is to recognize and to distinguish between the need for sleep and the hindrance of sloth and torpor. And at first you may not know, but after one nap, after two naps, after three naps, after four naps... How many naps before it kind of dawns on you that maybe there's a hindrance here? We have to catch it before the mind gets so tired it doesn't bother to care. If sloth and torpor is really strong, 
we stop caring about developing the mind. We just don't bring forth the energy to do anything about it. So if we can catch it early, where we still have motivation (laughs) to see the conditions of the mind, even the hindrances that arise in the mind, then we can be curious. What does sloth and torpor feel like? How does it affect the body? How does it affect the mind? What is still possible to do with our mind when sloth and torpor has arisen? How do we even know that it's sloth and torpor? Do we feel a heaviness, a dullness? Are there different sensations in the face, around the eyelids? Is it an equality of sluggishness? Does it feel more physical, more mental? It, probably both, but how do you experience it? So instead of indulge the energy, the dulling energy of sloth and torpor, we investigate it. But sloth and torpor can sometimes come upon us like a tidal wave. And it's almost like we are too suddenly too tired to even investigate it. And then we have to raise up enough energy to deal with it. Sometimes we open our eyes just to bring in a little light. Sometimes we can remain with our eyes closed, but there's enough light in the mind that just by focusing on light, it kind of brightens us up. You know how it's harder to fall asleep when there's light in the room? It's the same kind of an idea in the mind. When, when we're aware of light, it's, it's somewhat energizing. Somehow we have to increase the energizing factor. That could be increasing our motivation. It could be reflecting on what we came here for. Sometimes we we need to perk up the interest by shifting our object. If we were doing metta, do a little mindfulness of the body. If we were doing mindfulness of the breath, try a little metta. Sometimes we might need to change our posture. We might need to go from the sitting position to the standing position. That usually helps a lot when it's, when, when it's sloth and torpor. But when we're physically, really, really physically fatigued, it's much harder to fall asleep standing up, but it's not impossible. <laughs> there are some meditation practices that really perk up the energizing factors. And for many people, metta is one of those go-to practices. Because when metta arises, there's joy. And joy is an energizing factor. Some people like to contemplate their motivation or contemplate their virtues or generosity or the qualities of the Buddha. Because those are inspiring. They put the mind in a very positive, wholesome state. And they give you something to think about. Something for the mind to kind of hold on to so it doesn't drift off into to dullness and fantasy. So it gives the mind a little something to do. It's like a little bit of candy it gets to chew on or suck on, some hard candy, to think about the beautiful qualities of the awakened mind of the Buddha or to, to contemplate the virtue. You have to see what will help you perk up your meditation practice, to to harness whatever energies are there to dispel the tendency to withdraw from the present experience. How do you pull yourself out of that kind of sinking, that, that sense of sinking into the mud of sloth and torpor? How do you... Um, uh, Settle the mind that's floating off into fantasy. How do you wake up the mind that's being lulled, you know, into a state of dullness? The classic antidote really is vitaka, the right aim, the directing of attention, the connecting of the attention. So check how clearly you can meet the object and choose an object that you can meet. Not one that's so difficult that you can't get it. And not one that's so obscure or so subtle that you can't discern it. Choose an object that you can actually perceive. 
One of the great things I think about standing meditation isn't just that you can't fall asleep as easily from standing, but there are very clear sensations. Most people have strong sensations. If you stand for 20 minutes or a half an hour, you're going to feel your feet. And you take that as the object. You direct your attention. It's something the mind can connect with. It takes a certain amount of resolve and diligence and discipline and vigor to deal with sloth and torpor. And I think it's okay to challenge ourselves sometimes, to not let um, laziness masquerade as compassion. Oh, I think I'll just go rest again. Oh, the schedule, let's see. Oh, Shyla's finished her talk. There's no more teachings. Oh, she's gone off. I think I'll go to bed too. Well, maybe you, you still have energy. Can you use it fully? One of the nice things about a schedule like this and coming together as a group of experienced practitioners is we can each extend ourselves in the way that works for us. Some of you might be waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Come down. Meditate. Usually the spotlights are on. If they're not, the light's right over there behind Connie. Go ahead and turn on the light and... Enjoy the meditation or sit in the dark if you prefer. Sit in one of the chapels in the lounges. Do walking meditation up and down the halls in your bedroom. Come down and have a nice cup of decaf coffee or something and enjoy the quiet of the dining room. Go out for a beautiful walk in the evening. It's nice to be in a place that feels safe to walk outside where there's nature and there's bugs. They make sounds. They sing to us at night. Enjoy it. Other people might stay up late at night. Whatever your rhythm is, extend yourself. As long as there is energy, channel it towards your practice, towards your deepening of your practice. And I encourage you to extend yourselves a bit. It's not, it wasn't easy for any of you to get here. We all had to work pretty hard to get to this retreat. So we, let's use the time fully. But no, but also with the compassion that when you need to rest, you go to your room and you rest. Sloth and torpor is essentially the quality of the mind that holds back. That's what we want to, um, that's the habit we don't want to feed. And that's why I suggest push a little bit. Don't go over a cliff. Don't push yourself into something that's way too hard. But sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit and we can extend ourselves a little bit I'd suggest five extra minutes ten extra minutes fifteen extra minutes see how that goes you might find yourself then sitting an extra hour an extra two hours a sitting a walking a sitting a walking and find that there's still energy so we use it There's nothing else we need to do here but to cultivate loving-kindness, mindfulness, concentration. If we are holding back our energies, we will not experience joy. Joy comes when we let go of those restrictive patterns, where we let go of that self-protection, where we open to the experience that we're having. That's when joy comes. So don't hold back.
I want to talk a little bit about the hindrance of restlessness. Restlessness is that flurry of agitation that can come, that can be physical or it can be mental. And often underneath or in combination with restlessness, there's worry, fear, anxiety, remorse, regret, craving, expectation, personal kind of pressure that we put on ourselves and conceit. We may feel restless when we're trying to do do too much, too fast, on a timeline that is unrealistic. We get impatient. We're craving for something that isn't present. We get restless. If the mind cannot connect with present experience, oh, the, mind, the mind cannot connect with present experience, sometimes because it withdraws with sloth and torpor, but sometimes because it topples over the present into the future into expectation, into hope, into desire, hurrying to the next task. It's almost like we're leaning forward into life and always off balance in the present. It can easily lead to an experience of agitation or feeling scattered. Sometimes we're not aware of it so much in the mind, but we notice that our, our, our hands are, are, are shaking, we're, we're tapping, we're, we're, we're moving our foot. And, and it's not the physical, like a health issue of restless leg. It's, it's restless. It's restlessness of the mind that's manifesting physically. You probably will notice restlessness if you find yourself looking at your watch. There's really very little that you need to look at your watch for. A couple of times a day at strategic moments. Is it time for a meal? Is it time for my small group? Is it time for the teachings? But if you're sitting and meditating and you're looking at your watch every five minutes, please notice restlessness. (laughs) It's a clear sign. If you find yourself squirming in your seat... Or doing something. I think if you tune in, you'll notice your way of expressing restlessness. Restlessness is likened to the flapping of flags in a strong wind. When the mind is restless, we don't connect with the experience of the body, the breath, metta, our meditation subject. It's as though we can't really stay with the experience that we're having. We can't sustain a simple sense of developing metta toward a being. The next thing you know, we're thinking about something else, or the thought of the being caused a proliferating train of thoughts about what we're going to do the next time we meet that person and what they're experiencing in their lives. And the next thing you know, all we're doing is thinking about it, and we completely forgot about the intention of goodwill. This, um, this also often happens when there's an imbalance of the awakening factors, those factors particularly of energy and concentration, whereas with sloth and, tor- sloth and torpor arises when the concentration is stronger than the energy, restlessness tends to arise when the energy or the arousing factors of energy, joy, and even interest are much stronger than the stabilizing factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So we have to keep those sets of factors in mind, balance them when they feel like they're getting out of whack. When people sit down to develop meditation, very often restlessness is the seems to be the primary obstacle to concentration, especially meditators who are aspiring for jhana. It seems to be the main hindrance (laughs) is the tendency of the mind to still want to think about everything, anything other than our meditation subject. Interestingly, even after we've settled the thoughts and continued to deepen the concentration, so the mind is not so concerned about past and future and worldly things, if the restlessness hasn't settled, then we might find ourselves agitated 
by the qualities that arise with concentration because a lot of energy arises with concentration. As soon as we're not thinking about all those other things, of, you know, we dissipate. We, we dissipate a tremendous amount of energy by thinking. Habitual thinking, restless thinking. When that settles, there's a lot of energy in our system. But we have to learn how to channel that to concentration. Otherwise, it's going to create more restlessness. Similarly, joy can create a lot of energy in our system. And that can agitate the mind if we haven't learned how to channel that towards deeper concentration. So these are good qualities that come along, but they can agitate the mind, those, the, um, the interest or investigation, the energy and the joy, can all agitate the mind if, the, if it, they're not balanced by, supported by, developed in conjunction with tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And very often I find with meditators that it's the equanimity piece that can be weak. Of course, everybody's different, but check the equanimity. That's been the most common um, weak factor. As people get more concentrated, there's more joy and, and um, there's more joy and there's more energy in the system, and they don't have the equanimity to hold it. So it triggers conceit, it triggers excitement, and the next thing you know, the mind is like thinking and planning about all kinds of things, and it blows the concentration. So when we know that, we know we are developing the qualities and conditions of mind that are the awakening factors, that are the conditions that enable awakening. We're doing something very profound. We're not just directing attention to the breath or the body. We're not just cultivating loving kindness for this being or that being. We're developing the mind in a way that leads to awakening. And this balance is really important. All the awakening factors are really important. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. So how to work with restlessness? First, recognize it. This is restlessness. Name it. Feel it. Recognize how it manifests physically, emotionally, mentally. You don't need to be afraid of this hindrance. Hindrances can only overtake our minds when we don't see them. When we see them, they lose their power. There are many manifestations of restlessness, and we each need to find our tendencies some people go to remorse of the past. Some people are obsessive about planning the future. Some people feel it very physically. Sometimes the mind goes over and over and over, ruminating over what happened or imagining scenarios about what might happen or replaying and rehearsing possible conversations that we will never have. Restless worry can turn even innocuous occasions of uncertainty into fantasies of complete catastrophe. When restlessness arises, we must be mindful of it as restlessness and know that this is just a hindrance. It's not the worst thing in the world, it's a, but it is a hindrance. It will hinder our meditation if we don't develop skill in working with it. But often when it arises, we haven't completely lost our mindfulness. There's enough mindfulness there to say, oh, this is restlessness. How do I feel it? How do I recognize it? And then we can direct our attention to something grounding, something stabilizing, something that helps us develop composure. That, what that is will vary for different people. For some people, it'll be the breath. There's a rhythm of breathing in and breathing out that is very easy for some people to compose themselves. But for other people, oh, the mind just goes off into fantasy. 
For some people, it's mindfulness of the body again. Really feel the feet on the ground. Feel the hands where they touch. Ground the attention in the stability of this posture. Sometimes there's so much energy that one wants to open the attention and just for a while hear sounds arising and passing, hearing a sound in the room, a sound in the body, a sound outside, a sound in the room, a sound in the body, a sound outside, and just allow or just open the attention and allow sounds wherever they may be to arise and pass being known in their arising and being known in their passing. So it feels like we're Ah, leaning back at a concert with our eyes closed, just listening to the instruments in a symphony, in an orchestra. Restless energy can take us all over the place. So if there is a lot of energy... And restlessness, be mindful when you stand up. Collect your energy. Collect your, uh, uh, gather uh, your, uh, clarify your intention. Gather your energy so that you can walk mindfully and with purpose to wherever you're going to do your walking meditation. If not, chances are you'll let the restless energy will take you out to find some, something that will, Dispel, um, agitate or dispel or, 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 or look for fun. You know, what, is, what does your restless energy do? Often it looks for something stimulating. And that will just dispel the concentration. The trick with restlessness is to gather the energy, not dispel it, but channel it compose the mind, channel the energy into calmness so that the concentration deepens. When the mind is restless, we often can't stay with the object. It's as though we might connect with the experience, but then the mind bounces off. And it feels as though, we, although we might know what's happening, we don't have a deep experience with what's happening. It feels kind of superficial, kind of shallow and very often we're still caught in our in our conceits in our, our personal stories and in our personal preferences so sometimes we need to coax our mind a little bit convince it that it's okay to be here it's okay to settle it's okay to deal with the conditions of the present moment they're all okay it's kind of like, it's okay, mind. It's okay, mind. You can be with this. <laughs> you don't have to go running after something else. Right here. Settle here. Take a breath. Connect. Try different ways to gather and collect your energy so you don't fritter it away. Direct it to deepen your mindfulness, concentration, your samadhi, your insight. One of the traditional suggestions is to reflect on the peace of concentration. To remind yourself that the practice that we're doing brings fruit that is peaceful. That's good. That's nice. This can help us bring patience to our resolve and overcome the tendency to reach for thrills or, or quick, um, uh, uh, quick um, results. Can we settle, composed, patient? Uh, let the practice unfold. Watch it unfold, moment by moment, sensation by sensation, one metta phrase at a time. I want to mention a few ways of working with restlessness. The first is to make a clear commitment, a resolve, to connect with your meditation subject. Whether it's breath or metta for beings, connect in a way that reminds you that you want to do this. The um, 
John, a factor that is the antidote to restlessness is pleasure, is sukha. We have to find a way to be pleased, to find pleasure and ease in the experience that we're having so that the energy of restlessness doesn't pull us away. Sometimes we can do that by reminding ourselves that we want to do this practice. We want to understand the mind. We want to cultivate patience and loving kindness and virtues. And we value the contentment that comes with the simple things of developing the mind. So there's a diligence and a consistency that helps us connect again and again with our meditation subject. The development of metta, one phrase at a time, one being at a time, one moment at a time, one breath at a time. This intentionality strengthens our concentration and we are gradually then training the mind to connect and to go deep. It's not pushing the mind deep. It's allowing the patient unfolding of the practice and the mind stays aware of the process as it unfolds. We also can allow the mind to be quite spacious. A restless mind, as I said, has a lot of energy. And sometimes that just can't fit in a small space. (laughs) So we might change the object to sounds if the restlessness is really strong because that's a very open experience. I I usually, I rarely ever do that, honestly. (laughs) Maybe the first few years of my practice, but I rarely ever do that. Instead, I stay with my object, but I check that the quality of the mind is vast and spacious, that there's no sense of constriction in the mind, but I stay focused on whatever practice it is that I'm doing. So then the mind is relaxed. The mind is spacious. The mind is vast and expanded enough to hold the energy. In the Middle Link Discourses, there's a, a, a teaching on, um, called Advice to Rahula. And Rahula was given this instruction, and he was, Venerable Rahula was taught, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean and dirty things, excrement, urine, spit, pus, blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not uh, invade your mind and remain. This is basically a teaching of having equanimity between the things that we like and don't like. But I use this, this visualization of meditation that is like the earth, this great equanimity, to also support and stabilize a mind that is tending towards restlessness. There's a stability of that earth that I sense. Equanimity, balance, that helps contain and uh, tranquilize the energy. And the discourse goes through the various elements where he's taught to develop meditation that is like water, develop meditation that is like fire, wind, or space. So if any of those images resonate for you, you can bring in an image when your mind is starting to get a little agitated and restless and see if that helps restore some of those. This one emphasizes equanimity, which is one of those calming factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And that can help um, balance, uh, balance the energies. 
I've already spoken of gathering the energy that is present and instead of letting it go off into agitation or thoughts, channel it towards stillness. Channel it towards the development of your meditation subject. Even if you have to do something slightly different. For example, if there's a lot of mental energy, I give my mind more to do. If my mind wants to think, I say, go ahead and think. But now I want you to think about my meditation subject. You want to do something? Okay, if I'm working with on a mindfulness with breathing, okay, you can count the breath. You know, so come help me. And I let that mind count the breaths. Make it useful. You can, you can, put, it, you can put the energies of the mind to work. Sometimes if I'm working with mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of breath and there's a lot of energy, I'll need more objects. So instead of just observing the in-breath and the out-breath, I'll add sitting and touching, in-out, sitting, touching, in-out, sitting and touching. So that I can give the mind, just use that energy and gradually bring it into the purpose for which I am sitting you know, the practice that I'm doing. You can check with metta to see if different ways of doing metta, different categories, different beings, different phrases, whether the image is stronger or the meaning is stronger or the quality of metta is stronger. Where are you putting your focus? Does, that, do, does any of that affect the restlessness? Is there a way that you can bring harmony to your, to your mind? Walking meditation I use to balance both sloth and torpor because it raises the energy and to settle restlessness because it really is a great balancing practice. But this practice is not only about, I mean, balance is important, but it's not only about balancing the mind, balancing the energy dispelling the hindrances. These are deeply habituated hindrances. They've been around for a long time. The Buddha talked about them, and we're still experiencing them thousands of years later. So we shouldn't take them as a kind of personal insult if should they arise. But we do need to deal with them. If we don't, the mind can easily become distorted and, um, and obstructed. The trick to be mindful of the hindrance is to be mindful of it, not to judge ourselves because of it, not to get it, have aversion towards it, not to let it create doubt in our capacity to practice. When we're mindful of it, it will weaken it may eventually disappear. And we'll then experience a mind that is free from the hindrances, where none of the hindrances are obsessing the mind. Notice that. Notice these reprieves. Experience the joy of an unobstructed mind. Be mindful not only of the presence of the hindrances, but of their absent. As the duration of these hindrance-free moments increases, the wholesome states will grow stronger. There'll be more pleasure in the meditation. There'll be a gladness as you encounter the states of your own mind. There'll be more happiness in the practice. And you may experience a kind of happiness that is associated with deep concentration. The first jhana is characterized by a happiness born from seclusion. And do you remember what one of the main things the mind is secluded from? It's secluded from the hindrances. That absence brings great joy. So please notice the presence of the hindrances and work with them skillfully, but also recognize their absence and let that bring gladness and joy. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.